0: Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by David Obeid on the topic, It's Just Grace. This May 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. David Obeid is a founding member of Lumen Verum.
1: chapter, it's only about 13 pages I'm, sorry, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you but I've gone through and I've, sort of, I've highlighted what I think are some key points in that chapter um, and I'm going to go through, read those to you and then discuss what I think are the problems with them a lot of the time what, uh, what Ray Gilear does uh, is either misrepresent um, the Catholic point of view me, uh, emphasising some parts and, and, and not emphasising others, um, misrepresents the teaching of scripture, and then at the same time, I think he misrepresents um, reformed theology. He makes some assumptions. He says some little throwaway lines, like, if only you stuck to the clear teaching of the Bible, you'd have the view of reformed theology. Well, that's easy to say. Um, it would be exactly like, in my opinion, a Muslim saying, You know, if you had the true version of the Bible, the real one, before the Catholics got to it, then you'd know that Muhammad was the true prophet and you'd follow him. It's easy to say, but where's the evidence? So let me go through. So we're going to chapter 6. It starts on page 73 of the book. The reading from page 73, Mr Galea says that salvation within Christianity is a work of God, not man. From beginning to end, and it is freely given and undeservedly given through Christ. Grace with generosity. It's when something is purely given out of the goodness and kindness of the giver, regardless of the worthiness of the recipient, indeed, despite the unworthiness of the recipient. Salvation in Christianity is, not a, is a work of God, not man. Well, you know, as Catholics, you probably wouldn't have a lot to disagree with in that particular statement. But then he goes one, one little bit further. He says, from beginning to end, what he tries to say is that we have absolutely no role. And ultimately, that's the view of this particular brand of Reformed theology. They so say we have absolutely no role in our salvation. Uh, Rob uh, has sort of mentioned um, some of the many talks of his that I've been to a little bit of his background. Sorry. Um, in, yeah, sorry, like I was saying, Rob, in a, in a few of the talks he's, uh, he's given, Rob has mentioned in the past, um, going to Billy Graham evangelistic crusade, sometime back in when Rob was young, I think it was the 1920s. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, Billy Graham did and I think his, his people still do uh, give what they call the, uh, an altar call they are people to come forward and make a decision for Christ Billy Graham uh, would be frowned upon I think by a lot of people um, that would back Mr Galea's opinion because he says you don't even make a decision for Christ, you can't you can't make a decision because if you do then you're doing something and it's God from beginning to end it's a, a hyper radical Calvinistic view mm. that you can't even choose,
2: that God grabs you and drags you. It's okay to say something right there. Sure. The, the Jensen's themselves say that that's Philip Jensen and his brother Peter, who's the head of the Anglican Communion in Sydney. They actually went to the fifty nine really great crusade and went forward there. Mm. And then they still say that you can't. Well, if they adhere to that. Particular
1: reformed yeah. Um Yes, yeah, so, I mean, this idea that, that we can, we, we're not even capable of, uh, of responding to God's call, that we're literally taken and dragged, um, it's actually a logical feature of um, reformed theology. Yeah, you almost have to, if you want to be logically consistent, You almost have to think that. If you want to say that I'm saved by faith alone, if you want to say that I'm saved by faith alone, then what faith alone has to have is it has to have all those little things holding it up. Because it doesn't seem like it makes any sense. And so, Protestantism built up all those things around it. For example, the idea of uh, scripture alone. The Bible is our only authority. Now, you might think, well, I don't exactly see the relationship between the Bible alone and faith alone. Uh, well, it's, it's not that hard to point out. Uh, a little while after Luther's revolt, when well, he said, we just need the Bible, we don't need popes or councils or this or that, we just need the Bible, Luther himself would pour scorn on people who had an interpretation of the Bible as different to his he used to uh, use the expression that you need, what you needed was the kernel of the gospel. You needed, the, you needed to understand what the gospel was about, to go and see what the gospel was about, then of course you'd arrive at his interpretation of the Bible. And then all you needed was the Bible and this interpretation. And what was the kernel of the, the, the gospel? Well, according to him, the kernel of the gospel was his version of being saved by faith alone. Calvin came along and saw some flaws in what Luther was saying, and tried to plug some of the holes. And so some of the other things uh, in Reformed theology started to come up and get affirmed, things like um, Calvin, the Calvinistic view of double predestination. We don't choose; we're predestined. That's it. Locked in. Got nothing to do. In fact, there is no absolutely no free will, no matter what. There's lots of answers to that. You might ask people then well, why does the Bible bother admonishing people? Yeah. Uh, the verse a lot of uh, Reformed theologians use to defend Sola Scriptura, uh, St. Paul's second letter to Timothy says what? That the Bible is God, the Scriptures uh, God breathed, all Scripture is inspired by God, and is profitable for. Reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and fully equipped. Why? Why do I need to be reproved, trained, corrected? I don't have any free choice anyway. What's the point of reproving, and training, or correcting? What I need correction. Is it going to matter if somebody corrects me? What's the point? Why, for example. The New Testament books, like the letters of the Hebrews, uh, why is almost half of that admonishing people on on their behaviour and what to do if they fall away? Telling people to come back to return. You've got an advocate in heaven. Why? Why bother telling people if they're going to go and come back like yo-yos against their will anyway? What's the point? What's the point of any instruction in the Bible? Galileo goes on to point out, he knows, he can tell that, look, you need all these alones in Protestantism to work together because if you pull one of them out, the whole thing crumbles. On their own, none of them stand up. And they all exist, only so they can support the other. Um, he actually says on the next page, um, Ever since the time of the Reformation, Protestants have summarised uh, the core areas of difference with with Catholicism excuse me in uh, three slogans Christ alone and then in brackets Galia explains that uh, it's not Christ plus human priests and the sacrifice of the mass the Bible alone that's not the Bible plus the traditions and authority of the church and faith alone it's not faith plus our good works and merits as the basis of salvation you kind of have to wonder I mean I wonder if I sat down with Galia and said so you believe in Christ alone he said yes I wonder what he'd say if I said so you believe in Christ alone not Christ and the Bible why arbitrarily pick priests and the mass why he might say well Christ needs to be communicated to you in some way okay fantastic mythical there. why not through priests and the mass why not because you say so do the scriptures say so? Do the scriptures say through the Bible alone? No. But why should I listen to you? Um, incidentally, all of those catch Christ alone would a Catholic say we need Christ alone? Yes, absolutely. Does a Catholic have a different understanding to a, a reformed theology when they say that? Yeah, we do. So if you, come, if you come to a Reformed theologian and say, do you need Christ alone? You'd say, yes. You'd say, does that mean you can flick the Bible? You'd say, no. Okay. So to a Catholic, would we say Christ alone? you would say, yes, absolutely. Okay. So does that mean you, you can flick the means that Christ comes to you? No, we can't. What does St John say about people who deny that Christ came in the flesh? Does anybody know? They're the Antichrist. They're the anti-Christ. If you deny that Christ came in the flesh, you are the antichrist. Christ alone? Yeah, absolutely. So Christ and Mary? No, Christ alone. Well, you've got a problem there. Because if it's Christ alone and there's no Mary, then you're chucking out the way Christ came, and that means you're chucking out that Christ came in the flesh, and you're turning yourself into an antichrist, according to Scripture. So they're great catchphrases, Bible alone. Catholics aren't used to the expression Bible alone. But really, um, there's no... There's, I mean, apart from, uh, from things like saying what the Bible is, there are no Catholic teachings in and of themselves uh, that say, well, look, you know, we're not going to form any basis, we're not going to show no, no contradiction. All Catholic teaching is so heavily and and deeply scriptural. Uh, While we wouldn't use the expression Bible alone, there's certainly nothing unbiblical or anti-biblical in any Catholic doctrine. Faith alone. Well, we don't like the expression faith alone because that in itself is unbiblical. St James says, you know, you you want to see that you're saved by works and not by faith alone. But is faith central in salvation? Yeah, Catholic would say that. So the differences then lie in the little distinctions the Reformed theologians make. Let's uh, pick some of these apart as we go. Uh, Mr. Galia says that uh, to the slogans Christ alone, Bible alone, and faith alone, he says the reformers added one more: grace alone. He says that grace alone summarises and explains the other three. Um, well, let's see. <clears throat> he says that our capacity, and I'm reading now from page 75, even our capacity for responding to God, even the ability to turn to Him and accept His forgiveness, even that is a gift of God, because of ourselves and by ourselves, we are incapable. So, if I was to, if you were to, to have a discussion with a reformed theologian, you know, he brought this point, excuse me, he brought this point up, look, all your works are so bad, as a Catholic, all your works, all your rosaries, all, it's all, you know, because you're a sinner, they're all so bad, that in, in God's eyes they're nothing. Uh, absolutely nothing. So what you need to do is you have to respond to God by faith. And I think a good way to argue it would be to say, um, "Do you have as much faith as Abraham? Have you got as much faith as Abraham? Abraham did Abraham have saving faith? Yeah, absolutely, but because the Bible says Abraham had, had you know had faith and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. When when did Abraham have this saving faith? If you read um, uh, Hebrews chapters, uh, chapter chapter 11." talks about Abraham's faith in leaving his father's house. Abraham lived with his father and his brother and God called him and he said, Look, leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. So Abraham picks up and he goes. And St Paul praises him, the New Testament St Paul praises that as Abraham had his faith. And then later on, God comes to Abraham and He says, See Sarah, 99 years old, she's going to have a baby. They come along and they think, well, okay, this is almost impossible. It is impossible. How's a 99-year-old woman going to have a baby? But Abraham believed God. And the, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteous. Was that his saving faith? Some Protestants will say yes. It's okay. So if he was saved then because he was reckoned as righteous, does that mean his faith earlier was not saving faith? They might get a bit edgy but they'd have to say yes because they believe you're going be saved once. So Abraham wasn't saved when he had a beginning bit of faith. He was saved later on when he had a deeper faith. So do you have faith like Abraham? Is your faith enough faith? Oh, is it? Is your faith enough? If I was to stand you up right now, how do you know? Is it as much as Abraham was? your answer would be exactly what Gilead's answer is here our very capacity to respond to God the ability to turn to him and accept his forgiveness even that is a gift of God so yeah, my faith is not as great as Abraham's but God will come and look at my faith and say look Dave it's kind of ordinary but it's faith, you'll trust him so yes come be my son I'll be your father What about Rob? Rob's got a deeper faith than me. What happens to him? Well, Rob, of course, you've got a faith even greater than Dave's. Of course, you're my son. And what about Oled? Play Rob off a break. Yes, of course, Oled, come be my daughter. So what happens to all these different levels of faith? Well, God overlooks the imperfections because we're trusting in him and he completes what's lacking. That's pretty much what Gilead's point is here. But if God can do that to my faith, why can't He do that to my works? If God's suddenly incapable of saying, "No, look, Dave, your works just don't count whatsoever. Can't, I can't look at them because they're just basically worthless in my eyes." Isn't my ordinary faith worthless as well? It is, because God's got to complete it with His grace. That's what Billy is saying. I'm incapable of doing anything. So the little bit of faith I have God says well look you know, I'll give you this little bit of faith even though it's ordinary. I'm going to save you anyway. they okay. so give me a little bit of good works and save me because of them. I don't do good works on my own. The good works I do are a result of God's grace too. Okay. Then um, to try to prove his point the quote uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 please bear with me as I read those verses and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air in the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved, and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a a result of works, so that none may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Then he says, Notice what Paul says here. It is not that we were spiritually weak or sick. It was far worse than that, he says, we were stone cold dead. The idea that Galer is trying to move into now is this uh, again, another reformer here, that some Protestants sum up the total depravity that we're totally depraved original sin didn't wound our nature completely destroyed it no capacity for good whatsoever no capacity for good whatsoever um, and so that we can't turn to God we can't make a decision for Christ if we're going to be uh, true converts God will grab us and drag us along If you're trying, I don't know, I've got no idea how a reformed theologian would explain a Catholic trying to please God, because apparently you can't even try. Um, Yeah, anyway, the point is that uh, uh, we are completely depraved, in his very words, we are uh, the bleakest of the bleak, completely dead. But then he said that God comes along and saves us anyway. And uh, the proof for why God uh, saves us out of total depravity uh, regularly provides evidence. I don't want to shock anybody. What do you think? Something from Calvin? Something from St Augustine? Something from Scripture? Maybe St Paul? There's a bit you haven't read yet? The evidence that Rangelier brings up, believe it or not, is a a few verses from a Bob Dylan song. Um, Let me read to you exactly what he says. I love the way Bob Dylan basically summarises Paul in his song Saved. And here's Bob in all his glory. I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. By his grace I have been touched, by his word I have been healed, by his hand I have been delivered, by his spirit I have been sealed. I have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Then he says very candidly the Protestant reformers perceived that this teaching from the Bible about grace. Constituted a major difference from Roman Catholicism. That's, I mean, that's very, very true. They had a perception that this was the Bible's teaching. Um, there's a bit of a problem there because it's not actually the Bible's teaching. The Bible nowhere, nowhere says don't bother because you can't. Nowhere does the Bible say don't bother because you can the Bible, as I said earlier, is full of admonition for us to do good. Full of them. Why? Why is the Bible full of admonition for us to do good? Because we can. Because we can. It's that simple. Would anybody here think that I'd you know, completely lost my mind if I said that I wanted, um, look, Tom, do me a favour, you go outside to jump over the building for me? Would anybody seriously expect me to mean I want Tom to jump over the building for me? If so I was to say, look, Theresa, my water's finished, would you mind? Could you take my cup and fill it with water? Teresa? Is anybody shocked that is getting up, coming out, getting my cup and going to fill it with water for me? <laughs> is anybody shocked? Is there anybody thinking, well, you know, Theresa's a lot more reasonable than Tom? Because if they've asked Tom to do something and he wouldn't do it. He asked Theresa to do something and she's doing it. So, you know, what's the problem? Why wouldn't Tom jump over the building? Was there perhaps something wrong in the request? Yeah. I was insane to ask Tom to do something that he couldn't do. I was insane to ask Tom to do something he couldn't do. And it was perfectly reasonable of me to ask Theresa to do something that she could. Why does God admonish us to do good in the Bible? If we can't do it, why does he ask us to do it? Is he insane? No. Perhaps he's been perfectly reasonable. Because we can't. We can respond to his call. OK. So it sounds like it's reasonable. Thanks, Roger. I will drink it. It sounds like it's reasonable that God asks us to, to respond. But what of our response? What happens when God calls us to do something, we respond? Has God called you to something? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you promised, probably through your God parents, but you promised that you'd do something for God your baptismal promises they were a promise that you made God asked you will you reject Satan yep all of his works and pomps yep yep, yep. all of his empty promises yeah, yeah rejected no problem do you believe in God the Father and mighty creator yeah, yeah yeah I did that Yep. Holy Catholic Church yep. great and the priest said this is our faith this is the faith of the church we're proud to profess it go and leave this faith yep no problem it was a promise that you made Why were you called to that? Because you could. You could be called to it. Have you lived it perfectly? I went to confession before I walked in here, so there's my answer. (laughs) I haven't lived it perfectly. Has anybody here lived it perfectly? No. So does that mean that none of us have a hope of salvation? No, absolutely not. Sorry, does that mean that nobody here has a hope of salvation? No, absolutely not. We all have a hope of salvation. Why? Because in spite of our imperfections, in spite of our imperfections, God doesn't come along to us and say, Tom, if you are not perfect, you're not going to get to heaven. He says, Tom, be perfect. But he doesn't say, if you're not perfect, you're not going to get there. I want to be your father, and I want you to be my son. I want, to, I want us to live in a relationship. I'm not some distant God who's going to come along. Keep look. My boss gave me his badge. You know what his badge says? It says that I work at that place. My boss isn't... In fact, my boss in six years has walked into my room twice. Once because he uh, was looking for somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave me a badge, said I worked there, and it had nothing to do with me. Okay? I'm not bad mouthing for my boss for that, he's got lots of other problems. I'm not going to bad mouth for any of them. But he gave me a badge and then he disappeared. Okay. That's the reformed view of God. He comes along, he sticks a label on you, saved. And that's it. There's nothing else to, there's not there is nothing you do, there is no interaction involves him. Okay? You have your own, I'm gonna go off and I'm gonna grow my sanctification, i to do all this sort of stuff. Because I'm grateful. But it's not a, it's not you relating to God. It's very private, it's very individual. But what does Catholicism say? You're literally, you're born again at baptism. I don't care if you're 50. You come out of the waters of baptism, you're a babe, and it's your job. To grow in a relationship with your father. At the end of the day, your father's perfect and you're not. He looks and he says, Paul, look at all these imperfections. What are we gonna do? What are you gonna say, Paul? Um, well, Paul, look at all the things you've done. That's what I'm talking about. Look at all the things you've done. <laughs> That's the problem, Paul. What are you going to say? What are you going to say? I will try to look at the things. You know, actually, what. Hopefully, Paul, what you'll say is you say, look, please, huh, for the sake of what your son went through on the cross, for the sake of what he did, Can you look at the fact that I love you? Can you look at the fact that I want to be with you? And you know what God the Father says? Paul, for the sake of my son and what he did, anything you ask, I'll give. Didn't Christ say that? Whatever you ask in my name from the Father, he'll give. The main thing we should be asking for from the Father is salvation. We say it in Mass, look, you know, know, for what I've done, for what I've failed to do, we are to confess you through my fault. We come, we say, "Look, we're not perfect. We're not perfect, but we love you." Please, in your mercy, blot out the sins. There's a good reason for you to blot out the sins, God. Look what your son did. God, the Father, for the sake of what my son did, for sure, no problem. Come, it doesn't matter doesn't matter. So, what saved you? You can't say, well, look at the good things that I did. Because when you come along and say, look at the things I did, God goes, well, yeah. Look, if you're going to rely on the things you did, let's look at them. But if you come along and say, look, I never really loved you, but have uh, a free ride. I never really loved you because I couldn't have a free ride. Why would he? Why would he Reveal himself As a God of love And then we Offered no love Would he say Yeah okay For sure Come in Look at a classic Example of the Thief on the cross The good thief The guy who Stole heaven What did he do On the cross? Did he Was he really Saved without Doing anything good? Was he really Saved without any love? Was he saved Without any Contrition? What did he Say Pull the story apart. He's on the cross. And the other thief is deriding our Lord, throwing insults at him. And he says, don't you have any shame? Don't you know this man is innocent? We're guilty. We're getting what we deserve. What's he doing, man? I'm getting what I deserve. Something bad's coming my way. I'm getting what I deserve. In Catholic speak, it's called penance. Okay, he's making reparations. I'm offering up the suffering that I've done because I deserve this suffering. And then what does he do? Lord, you remember me. I'll take what's coming to me, I'll take the sufferings that are coming my way, and you, what I'm offering up is nowhere near enough. You fill up all the rest. You fill up the gaps. Gilead says Roman Catholicism uh, does believe in grace. Yeah, very kind of him. And teaches grace, in inverted commas. But his understanding of the word is complex and is often different from what the Bible means by it. That's a big call. And then he sums up what he says is the Catholic view on grace. Allow me to read a little bit here. According to Catholicism, grace, in inverted commas again, Uh, is not only God's free favour and generosity, it is also a kind of power or assistance which God gives to help us. Let me stop for a little bit. What he's talking about there is what Catholic theology calls actual grace. Um, What does actual mean? Am I actually drinking this cup of water? Somebody, anybody. It's okay, you can be wrong. I, either I am or I'm not drunk. No. Am I actually, I'm not actually drinking this cup of water. Uh, am I potentially, can I potentially drink this cup of water? Yes. You know, what? Thanks, Theresa. maybe pause it like you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's actual grace going to be about Yes, yeah. grace that actually does that actually causes you to do stuff if you're actually if something is actual it's doing actual grace is grace that gets you to do stuff what does actual grace get you to do? well it gets you to uh, come out of your house on a cold Friday night and come and listen to some guy speak it gets you to do good works it gets you to live your faith it gets you to go to mass, pray the rosary to you know do all the private devotions you have, to cook for your family to listen to your mum and dad to work hard for your boss, all those things are actual graces, they're all little pushes that push you on to something higher why would you do any of those things? why would you do any of those things? your mother always asks you to do unreasonable stuff Clean this. Drive me here. Listen to your father. Go and visit this particular auntie. It's all unreasonable. Why would you want to do any of that? Because when you obey your mother, it points to something higher. Get out of bed and go to mass. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to go to mass. I want to stay here. I want to be lazy on a Sunday morning. But if you get out of bed and you go to mass, it points you to something higher. So it's true. Catholicism does have this idea of grace as, a, as, a, as an assistance from God, as a shove from God. Then he says, the initial grace of forgiveness and cleansing that, God's, that God grants us, and which for the Catholic occurs at baptism, cannot be earned or merited. That's true. We don't earn the grace of baptism, we don't merit it, we don't deserve it. Okay. So a Catholic can't go. That, that's got ramifications for how we live. Our spiritual life. A Catholic can't go, uh, sort of like, like the attitude that St. Paul was condemning in, in the Jews of his day. A Catholic can't go, um, look, what's the problem? I'm a Catholic. I don't have to do anything. You know? Doesn't God love Catholics? Is he going to take me to heaven? What do I have to obey him? I've got a neighbour who lives almost like that. Dave, I don't need to go to Mass. I've got a cousin, who's also Maltese, by the way. I've got a cousin in Malta. He's a priest. What's him being a priest have to do with it or not you've got to get a mask?
0: <laughs>
1: and he uses that as, a, why do I have to do stuff? So? I've got a cousin who's a priest. Surely, because I've got a cousin who's a priest, I'm going to be saved. You know? like, what's the problem? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You can't point back to something and say, look, I've done that, that's it. That's first grace we got. It was completely unmerited. We didn't deserve it. God didn't have to come along and, and give us that grace, but he did. He didn't have to lead us to baptism, but he did. Then Galilee goes on, he says, but the graces God supplies throughout the rest of the Christian life can be merited. What do you mean man? The grace that God supplies throughout the rest of the Christian life can be merited. That's true, but it's often a very, very misrepresent. Very easy to misrepresent. We can do things that please God. Very simple. You can do things that please God. How do we know that we can do things that please God? Well, first of all, Scripture says there are things we can do to please God. Um, off the top of my head, I think it's... Uh, I should have prepared the verse. Uh, Where St Paul talks about offering ourselves as a spiritual sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God Romans 5 Romans 5
2: what about the woman who put the two lights in the tent that pleased Jesus yeah that's right yeah yeah, and
1: of course the gospels are full of examples of people who do things that could please Jesus even surprising wow look at this look at this faith fantastic and he rewards them There's lots of examples of us doing things that actually please God. And God tells us that he's going to give us a reward for these things. You don't need to go into all the sort of kookiness of um, Pentecostalism's uh, um, prosperity gospels. But all, a lot of the scriptures that they speak about, speak about God's reward in this life that carries on for eternity. Don't work to save up things that moth and rice are going to consume. Lay up what? Lay up treasure in heaven. How can you lay up a treasure in heaven? How can you lay up, If you don't merit anything, how can you lay up treasure for yourself in heaven? How does that happen? Oh, that was just some bad theology from Jesus. He didn't really mean it. You've got to go to Calvin. you got to go to Calvin to get the real deal. Look, don't laugh. James White who is a uh, uh, a reformed apologist in in the United States. He actually, I think it's a blasphemy, he actually says that you can't, if you want to know about justification, you can't look to our Lord's teaching in the Gospels. Because he says that our Lord only teaches about salvation in, in tangential ways. And if you want the real teaching on salvation, sound like Luther, if you want the kernel of the Gospel, the bit that I say is important, if you want the real kernel, you have to be able to Saint Paul and in particular James Watt's interpretation of St. Paul. That's a blasphemy. That is a blasphemy. Then he says and Gilead goes on to say that it may seem strange or contradictory that grace can be merited. So lay up treasure for yourself in heaven is a strange and contradictory teaching they're according to Mr. Galilea. But then he said, quite consistent with Catholicism's tendency to see salvation in all its different aspects as an act of cooperation between man and God. Isn't it relieving to know that our Lord was also a Catholic then? He goes on, he says, God for his part is kind and merciful. Man for his part tries hard to merit God's kindness through good works. That's not exactly accurate. Man to his part tries hard to merit God's kindness through good works. No. Man on his part tries to love God. We can't so we can't sort of go out, strictly speaking, to say oh, I'm going to do this to merit. If we treat God like an employer, if we treat God like an employer and rock up and say right over, ching, chin. give me the cash, Pay up. Then God comes along and says no way Robert St. Janus, a Catholic apologist from the States has a fantastic analogy to explain this He says if you want to work for God it's like this Let's pretend that uh, I'm God and I come along and I give you a ruler So look I'm God, I'm giving you a ruler, what do you think this ruler is? Dodgy, okay, good pretty good, perfect Well it's God's ruler, it's perfect I'm giving you a perfect ruler go away and make me a square box. So you go away, use the ruler, measure everything, measure all your diagonals, square box, yep, fantastic. You come back to God and say, here's my box, pay up. If you come back to God with that attitude, here's my box, pay up. According to uh, what St. Paul says about the law, God will take the ruler, well look at that, you're a billionth of a millimetre out on one of your diagonals. Billions of a millimetre. I oh, my name my box. Because I asked you to make a square box. This is not a square box, it's out by a billionth of a millimetre. Oh well, it was supposed to be perfect. Well I'm perfect and I ask you for a square box. You failed. if you have that attitude you come to God look this is it I've done it you owe me pay up don't go whinging about the imperfections sorry to pick on your paw. just look at the good bits <laughs> God says well no look what about all the problems it doesn't work but if we come along and God says look I've made this ruler and we go fantastic God look we did our best It's not a perfect box, but we love you and we made it for you. In Catholicism, we say that God looks at the gift graciously. He says, Well, thank you very, very much. I know that you did this out of love for me. And the imperfections? I'll overlook. Because my son bought you for me. And so you're mine. And so I'll fill up what's lacking in your imperfections. The work that we do, we don't go to God and say, Look, I've worked hard, you know, see the calluses on my knees, and you know, look, I've got rosary knees. You
0: know?
1: <laughs> Good Catholic, got rosary knees. If you go to God and show off your rosary knees, then that's okay. If you want to play that game with God, God will come back and say, Well, about all those rosaries, um, your guardian angel tells me that there was about 8 billion times you let your mind get distracted you're telling me you gave me 8 billion pathetic attempts at praying the rosary is that how it works we can't go to God we can't go to God and say look I've done you owe we give to God and say look it's not perfect but I'm giving it because I love you I'm giving it because I love you and God comes go back and says, look you know I love you too thank you I'll take it St so Louis de Montfort uses a beautiful beautiful example he talks about, uh, when he's talking about uh, approaching God through Mary, he comes along and he says that, uh, uh, think of yourself as a farmer who grows apples. And the apples you grow are, are very, very, very ordinary. They're terrible. You go through your entire orchard and you pick what you think is the best apple. And it's bruised and hailstones that hit it and the insect that chewed a little part of it away and it's terrible. You come to our lady and you say, Look, this is the best I've got. This is the best I've got. Give it to your son. Give it to the king. She takes the apple and she has no problem. She pearls it. She cuts away all the bandits. bits. And she goes, Son, I want you to have something from me. Oh, Mum, I love you. From you, what is it? She goes, It's a piece of apple. Your servant John brought it for me. Oh, I love that John, God. Look what he gives me. It's great. <laughs> okay. What we come and we give to God isn't perfection, but it's everything that we have. It's everything that we have. God looks and sees the means in which it's offered. Oh, such a good guy. I love that guy. I love it. I can't wait for him to come. So I can give him all of my glory here in heaven. Okay. So I mean, the character, the, the caricature that, that Gilead uses you now when he says, uh, "God, for His part, is kind and merciful. Man, for His part, tries hard to merit God's kindness through good works." a kind of the bang, boom. There's a, there's a division. God's over there, man's over there. God's sort of throwing out little helps and man's sort of battling and struggling and he's all on his own and he turns up all sweaty and dirty at the end of the day. (sighs) There, I did my part. Now you fill up the gaps and look at how it works. It's an ugly version. It's it's it's, It's not real Catholicism. It's an ugly caricature. Sadly, a lot of Catholics suffer from it. Yeah, my neighbour. What do you want? My cousin's a priest. What else do I have to do for God? I've got a cousin who's a priest. Isn't that enough? Has my family given enough? Gilead says that that, uh, in Catholic doctrine, grace is the outcome, a partly merited gift. Grace is a partly merited gift. That's not true at all. That's not true at all. When we come along and we give to God... We should know that we don't deserve anything back for it. The farmer that gives his terrible apple knows that this apple, this, this apple is worthless. This apple is absolutely worthless. If you get any, any favour for this, far out, that will be a miracle. Our good works are worthless. I can guarantee you, at the end of the day, if you can climb inside my head and listen to my exam, examination of the conscience, Mine gifts aren't, aren't exactly all that crash hype. Okay. If you're honest, neither are yours. What are you going to do? Seriously, what are you going to do? I know some fantastic people. I'm going to, Tomorrow morning, I'm going to go and pray at a, uh, a pro-life rally with a guy who's been arrested for his pro-life work. Yeah. Have you been arrested for your pro-life work? What are you going to say? I'm, I'm Catholic, I'm pro-life, I bought a t-shirt or I got a mug or... How do you rate? And then he's got his problems too. Okay. What we've got, we got to offer really is nothing. It is really nothing. So we don't go along and say, Look, you know, I've sweated it out, now pain. me. God, I did what I did for you because I love you. I know that it's nothing, but I want you to have it. And God looks and says, Look, son, I love you. And I'm going to take it and thank you. I understand what you do with our, I'm going to love you more. But have we merited? Have we gained a reward? Yeah. But did we strictly earn it in the strict sense? No, not at all. I and mean, the Catholic religion doesn't teach that. And then Galea um, the goes on, he's leading into, his next, into the next part of the chapter. He says that uh, the grace. Uh, comes from God's kindness and imparts God's power to us, uh, but the cooperation of the human and the church in particular is still essential. That's true. That's true. The cooperation of us and the church in particular is essential to the way we receive grace. Because it's the church that communicates Christ to us. And principally and mainly, the main way the church communicates Christ to us is in the sacrament.
2: I mean, just one yes. like example to a few regular. how would he interpret the parable of the talents the ones that get that cooperate and double are rewarded <coughs> the one who didn't cooperate with the gift and buried it got what no, got to take it taken off him yeah. and cast out mm. isn't that Christ giving gifts and expecting us to cooperate with his grace to produce fruit I think so. Spiritual fruit. And if we do, we get rewarded. And if we don't? Look, look, you're probably going to
1: ask, how on earth would they respond to something like that? The way a lot of Reformed theologians argue is they say that, look, you've got to understand, once you you realise that salvation is the way we say it is, then you've got to understand that uh, that those parts of the Bible that speak in this way are speaking about people who are already saved and it's not speaking about their salvation but their growth in, uh, uh, in holiness or it's, it's not speaking about the saved it's talking about the damned or whatever they suddenly develop all these categories that in uh, Pope Benedict's words I've been reading his book Jesus of Nazareth he's got a beautiful expression he talks about talking about a different thing he talks about all the, a lot of the modernists. Um, so-called biblical scholars. And he says, they paint this picture, and he says just in a couple of words, you can always tell a wise man when he destroys them in a few words. He says, uh, but such insights are not supported by the text. Lovely. Beautiful. They have all these categories and oh this is the reprobate and these are the damn This is This that that yeah that's great. But it's not supported by the text.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. He, um, he goes on to give a summary of what he's... he just giving a summary of what the Catholic position is. But I hope I've sort to clarify it a little bit. Then he goes on to give his summary of what the Protestant idea is. And he says this. So for Protestantism, man is spiritually dead, and salvation is all through God's unmerited favour. For Catholicism, man is spiritually weak and fallen, but with some assistance from God... Uh, is capable of cooperating with God's call and meriting further grace through good works. Then he says um, uh, in another um, statement that that shows that link with solar fideism, the idea we're saved by faith alone, he says this. He says, this goes back to what we discovered about justification and salvation um, in one of the previous chapters in the book. He says, in Protestantism, justification happens once, It's a once-for-all declaration by God of not guilty on the sinner because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. In Catholicism, justification is a process which happens over time involving the imparting of righteousness by God in cooperation with the believer. Let me unpack this idea of what he says justification is. Because in Protestantism, it's a declaration, not guilty. When does justification happen in this Protestant view of, of the Christian life? It happens at the beginning. What is it? A declaration from a judge. In Protestantism, the judgment happens at the beginning of the Christian life. How does St Paul say it? It is appointed for man to die once, and after death, the judgment. It's a point for man to die once and after death for judgment in scripture and in catholicism judgment happens at the end of life in protestantism judgment happens at the very beginning
0: okay.
1: they sort of turned it on its head okay. in the bible we see God as father calling his children back the prodigal son what happens he's coming back the father runs out to meet him come in You were dead, now you're alive. The father goes out. The father, 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 to call back, to call in, to to, to come in. Bring the dead back to life. It's the father who does that. At the end of life, it's the judge. Calvinism turns that around. God comes at the beginning as judge, and then if you're one of the people who are declared not guilty, then he becomes father. You can't lose your salvation. It's once for all. Remember that expression we used in Protestantism. Justification happens once. It's a once for all declaration by God of not guilty on the sinner. How um, am I going for time? Excellent. Let me speak a little bit just before I get into the sacraments. Let me talk about um, about this uh, this once for all. When you ask. Uh, Protestant apologists, you know, where is this once for all in the Bible? Um, where is this idea of you know, somebody being declared that's it and it's sealed? Where is it in the Bible? A lot of time, a lot of times, i will quote Romans 4. So, St. Paul, Romans chapter 4. Go ahead and read the first four or five chapters of Romans, get yourself a little bit of context around Romans 4. Read, read the beginning of Romans 4, especially verse 4. I can tell you the reference. Romans Four four speaks about Abraham and how he was uh, declared righteous. It was reckoned to him as righteous. Uh, his faith was reckoned as righteous to him. Uh, and this is the, the big example. This is the book. Abraham was reckoned, he made an act of faith and he was reckoned as righteous. And they they, they uh, point to the Greek word and they say that Greek word to reckon as righteous has got a legal connotation. Therefore it was a legal declaration. Not guilty. Bang, that's it. And then they say it it only has a legal connotation. It only has a legal connotation. Robertson Jennings, that guy I mentioned, has written a book where he dedicates a significant amount of examination of that word and looking at it in many different uses and contexts in Scripture, where he shows that it's got a very wide range of meanings. I'm not going to go through all of them now and bore you with a whole lot of greed. But anyway, he gives plenty of examples of it, but then he goes on a point and looks at what St Paul says next. He gives another example. He says, "Look, in the same way, in the same way that uh, that um, Abraham was reckoned righteous, so was David," and he quotes David in Roman in um, in uh, Psalm thirty-two. Go home, read more home if we read Psalm thirty-two. He quotes David in Psalm 32. What's David doing in Psalm 32? David's repenting from the, the time he sinned with, uh, with Bathsheba and Uriah. You know the story. Uriah was married to Bathsheba. David saw Bathsheba thought, wow, who is she? He was told she's to Uriah's wife. Great. Who's Uriah? He's one of your soldiers. He's all fighting in one of your wars. Oh, really, he's not here so David uh, hooks up a meeting with Besheba before you know Besheba' pregnant. David tries to invite Uriah back. He says, look, you know, you're back. You've got a beautiful wife. You know, when are you going to spend some time there? Uriah's a good guy. He says, look, you know, my brothers are dying. They're shedding their blood on the battlefield. I can't come back and lie with my wife or my brothers are dying. I won't do it. He slept out in the street. David's here far out. He goes, this is terrible. Uh, there's no way I can hide the pregnancy as being Uriah's. Like The whole idea was David was going to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so they could say, look, it was Uriah's kid. Uriah wouldn't sleep with her. So then David arranges for, um, for Uriah's death. He's guilty of, of, of adultery and murder. And then the prophet Nathan comes in and shows David why he's wrong. And uh, David goes through one of them uh deep conversion experiences in the Bible fasts for, for days, weeks for, for, for days lays flat on, ground, flat on the face on the ground uh, praying for, for forgiveness for his sin during that time he penned a few, seven psalms one of them was Psalm 32 why, is this, why, is, why does this matter? well because St Paul says that look David's speaking about justification just like I'm speaking about Abraham well, okay. If David was only justified then, then what about the faith David had before? When David was a young man, he killed Goliath. How? By his faith. What does he say? You know, Goliath comes out and he says, "You know, um, you, know you send a little boy. I'm going to break him apart and I'm going to feed him to the birds and this and the other." And David says, "You come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come how?" in the name of the living God David's got faith in God before that and we know that it's a real faith because he pulls off a miracle and kills a giant how else do we know that David's got faith before that because even earlier than that when the prophet Samuel goes to David's, to Jesse David's father when he goes to his house he says look you know um, God's calling me to come and find one of your sons and so Jesse brings out all these big boys and Samuel goes, no, 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 oh, there's another one. And I say, yeah, there's, there's a little run, David, he's off looking after the sheep. And Samuel goes, what does Samuel say? He said, look, the Lord doesn't look at the earth, so he looks at the heart. And he says that David's heart is like God's. How much more close, how much more union do you want with God before you're going to call somebody safe than that? Okay. God himself says, your heart is like mine. David publicly declares his faith in God and proves that it's, it's genuine with his, with his slaying of Goliath. Then he goes off and, and pens all the psalms he penned before that. You kind of want to think that there was some, some faith before that point. So what does that mean? Well, that means that Psalm 32, if Psalm 32 is David being justified, and St Paul says it is, then David must have been justified again. A second time. That means justification can't be once for all. So what happened David's first justification? Well, he must have lost it. And how did he lose it? How did he lose his justification? Through sin. Through sin. Through sin. His actions, his works, his bad works, cost him justification. If he avoided sin... It wouldn't have cost him his justification. In other words, his good works would have preserved his justification. Why? Because his good works are perfect? No. Because God overlooks the imperfections. Okay? So this, this idea that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, the, the Bible's teaching is not guilty. And that's it. You get a badge. You get a badge. It says not guilty. And no matter what, it doesn't matter. Because there's nothing you do that that, that affects your salvation. Not biblical. Even the verse, that Romans 4.4, the, this is it, this is the, you know, the 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 touchdown, um, uh, ultimate reform verse in the whole Bible, even that is immediately followed by a contradiction. Immediately followed by a contradiction. Now, does that mean that verse is contradicted? No, not at all. It means that the interpretation that the Calvinists give to it Can you the verse again? Sorry? The verse. Um, what then shall we say about Father Abraham? If he was justified by um, yeah, if he was justified by our works and he has something to boast about but not before God. Um, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Um, and that's, that's, yeah, that's up to, to verse 4 I think. I might have left out a couple of words, but that's, that's, that's you know, the basic it of with it. Now, what the idea is the Calvinists do, they take that, that passage, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And I say, look, that's it. He believed, and he was saved, that's it. All said and done for Abraham. Okay. The problem is, where the scriptures say that, in other parts, scriptures quote events from earlier in Abraham's life as him having faith and following God yeah I think that's Genesis 22 is it where we no, reckon the righteousness of Genesis 15 mm-hmm. but in Genesis 12 when God said get up and leave your father's house and go to a place that I will show you mm-hmm. um, in Hebrews 11 that's quoted as an example of, of, the, of the great faith of the fathers in the Old Testament uh, so you know the Bible says that had, had faith before that Uh, like I said, Galileo goes on then to take aim at the Catholic view of how uh, principally grace is given to us. How is grace given to us so that we can please God? Well, in Catholicism, it's principally through the sacraments. Um, I'm going to jump ahead, sort of a couple of pages, because he goes through sort of we'll list what the sacraments are, but I just want to jump ahead where he says this Uh, he says that uh, through hearing the gospel this is very important I get back to that through hearing the gospel and being united to Christ through faith believers receive all of his blessings complete and free forgiveness of all of our sins the gift and seal of the Holy Spirit who leads and enables us to live a godly life adoption as God's children citizenship in heaven the sure hope of eternal life and so on it comes as a complete package, entirely as a gift to be received by faith, as a result of God's grace or generosity alone, and not our merits or works. Well, you know what? There's just a lot of gobbledygook there, and I'll tell you why. Listen very carefully. Through hearing the gospel and being united to Christ. Excuse me. I was going to pick up this cardboard box and I'm going to say something to it. What am I? I'm crazy, aren't I? am crazy are the i i am talking to a cardboard box. <laughs> okay. Why am I crazy talking to a cardboard box? Because it. it can't hear. Let me read it again. Through hearing the gospel, so who's, who's doing this? Who's doing this hearing? Who's, the, who's doing this hearing? Well, the saved Protestant so far as doing something, he's hearing. What else is he doing? And being united to Christ. So look, here so I'll you're putting conditions. You're putting conditions. You have to hear and be united to Christ. Does that mean that you're teaching a salvation that's not purely by grace? He can't, look. what he wants to do is he wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to have His brand of religion is the real one That's the real one that God set up And if you don't do it exactly His way then you're doing the other one The one that God didn't set up Okay? Says him What is it about this Through hearing the gospel you know, A lot of time we call Protestants Evangelicals Evangelicals, a lot of people don't understand why People think like oh, evangelical That's like evangelist that's like tele evangelists that's like some guy who stands there and yells stuff. <laughs> and so they're evangelical because they're gum-ho and they're out there and they, they do preaching. No. They're called evangelical. The word, uh, uh evangelical comes from the word, uh, evangelion. Gospel. Gospel. Because they believe that you're not saved through the sacraments, but you're saved through the gospel. And what, what do they mean by that? What do they mean by the gospel? Well, they mean by literally you know, hearing the words of Scripture. It's just the words of Scripture that save, nothing else. What are the problems with that? Well, the words of Scripture say things like, Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life within you. Is any among you sick? Let him bring the elders so they can anoint him, and the prayer of faith will save him. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's the problem with hearing, with just hearing the gospel. If the gospel is actually tell you to do all this other voodoo Catholic sacramental stuff. Mm-hmm. In Catholicism, by contrast, this is again Billy's version of it. Salvation is piecemeal incomplete and uncertain and requires the constant work of the believer grace comes in stages through human activity that is through the sacraments over the course of a lifetime with the uncertain hope that sufficient righteousness will have been imparted and earned to merit salvation at the end. Uh, At the very, very, very best Uh, that is a, a, a horrible caricature. That's the best you can say about that. It's a, it's a horrible send up of what the actual Catholic position is. Um, look, as I read that paragraph, I don't know which bit to pick apart for my next point, but let me, let me start off with, with one of these first bits. In Catholicism, by contrast, salvation to peace, just the very sort of tone of it. Look, in Protestantism, it's glorious, it's whole, it's complete. Great, you know, it's all about Christ and in Catholicism it's all you know, you know, ditches, trenches, dirty, yucky, yuck, ugly. Yuck, yuck. Therefore, my virgins better. Yeah. Okay, so that means I should be a Muslim because I love the idea of forty-two virgins or however many these I get. Seventy,
2: 72. 72. even better.
0: What
2: happens to women in Muslim heaven? There's nothing in the Quran at all. that
0: says that women go to. Heaven. Uh-huh. Yeah, so stop your no,
2: mind. virgins. Are not women that live on Earth. So there's no, no no reason
0: to be caught in this life. You can go off and just be naughty. And...
2: Apart from the fact that I'll
1: kill you. Hmm? Apart from the fact that I'll kill you, there's probably no no reason to be good. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise we're just not
0: worrying
1: anymore. That's right. Um <clears throat> just the, the very fact that he 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 sort of presents Catholicism as an ugly caricature without actually saying. What, what is we really believe is a ridiculous argument. Yeah. Okay, all they do then is if I come up with any religion that, that sounds better than his and we should classify that. What's he actually saying now? What are the problems? Salvation is peace mode, like incomplete and uncertain. Why? Because it requires the constant work of the believer. You know, that makes it sound like it's real onerous and hard on us. But then we come back to that example of King David. Either the Bible, either the Holy Spirit got it wrong, and David didn't really lose salvation, wasn't really justified in Romans four, which Paul said he was. Either that, or, or our salvation does require our constant attention. We do really have to, dare I say it, work at our salvation in fear and trembling. Oh, hang on. It's not me who dared to say that. Or we had to go away and sin no more, if I dare say that. I mean, that wasn't there either. There was another guy who said it before me. You might have heard of it. What about those sins who you forgive, they are forgiven?
0: For? That means to say, say that we're always likely to fall into sin anyway, no matter what.
1: Um, yeah, do you want to hear the, the Calvinist response to that? The Calvinist response to that is that that's only uh, saying that the apostles can uh, tell, tell which people are declared righteous by God and which aren't. It's not saying that their actual sins are taken away from them. Again, um, such an interpretation uh, is not supported by the text. What's
2: that, the alphabet? When you go to church, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those to trespass us. Our trespasses against. That, as we know, is a prayer that was given to say regularly. Mm-hmm. So, in that prayer, we're asking each day for our sins <laughs> to be given. It. It's give not it. as if it was a one off act, and that's it. Science is delivered. Yeah, that's exactly right. What's the answer to that? What would
1: they say to that? And why is it ridiculous? What would they say? Well, he was talking about before the resurrection. Well, look. We'll. Where in the Bible do you see after the resurrection people saying the Lord's prayer? It's not there. Yeah, but... Okay, so does that mean that we relegate all the things that our Lord said before his resurrection to what else before? So we don't have to worry? So you must be born again, that doesn't really apply anymore? It's a ridiculous argument. It's an absolutely ridiculous argument. Uh, he says, over the course of a lifetime, the uncertain hope that sufficient righteousness will have been imparted and earned. That is a, that's a lie, plain and simple. That's not all, but maybe they're just not quite understanding. That's a lie. Catholics don't have to come along, and, and you know, we've got a secret sort of uh, stash somewhere with my book. But I've got to hoard up, I've got to walk around, and pick up all the merit I can, and have it in here. And I'm constantly looking in, thinking, oh, look, it's not enough. There's not enough marriage in there. There's not enough merit in there. I've got to get more merit. What if I die tomorrow? I don't have enough marriage? I've got to get up and flagellate myself for seven hours you know, so I can get more merit in my box. That's not Catholicism. That is not Catholicism. Okay, He's lying. That's, 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 that either he's completely insane or he's lying. There is only options. That is not Catholicism. Catholicism doesn't say that you'll only get to heaven if you've saved up enough good merit. That's Islam. That's not catholicism The baby who's baptised today and dies tonight is saved. What merit? What merit? In terms of what sort of the good works they did. What good works? None. How many roses? None. Why? Why are they say it? Because Christ said, you must be born of water and the Holy Spirit. That no, baby was born of water and the Holy Spirit at baptism. So what is it then that saves the baby? It's the words of Christ? Do you want to answer the kingdom of heaven? Born of water and the Holy Spirit. Okay, baby's born of water and the Holy Spirit. It's done no sin. Jesus, do you speak truly?
0: Yeah? What do we do
1: Um, the question is open. The question is open. Um, uh, look, we've lost a baby through miscarriage. My wife and I have lost a baby through miscarriage. Um, and so, look, I don't want to come along and say, oh, look, I know what I'd like to be true, but that doesn't make it true because I'd like it to be true. Um, there are theories, and um, different theories. One theory says that uh, um, God gives them a natural happiness because they've committed no sin on their own part. Mm-hmm. Another theory says that uh, God will give them some kind of test uh, so they can uh, make a decision be like the angels and then be in heaven with Him. That's not desire? Yeah. Another theory says that the fact that I desired baptism for my child and I would have baptised him if I could uh, says that, you know, is another option for them to be saved. Um, and there's lots of different options, but we just don't know.
2: Our Lord I never told us. My Pope Benedict, said in 2006, I think, that he, he was just um, trying to tell us that the option that the baby can be saved should not be excluded. Yeah. You know, there is a possibility, but we don't know for certain. That's right. Yeah. We don't
1: know. Basically, in other words, we don't know. Um,
2: what do Calvinists
1: say? Very, I'm very, very glad you asked, Tom. Um, <laughs> interestingly, if you ask a Calvinist what happens to an unbaptized baby, they'll tell you that God in his mercy will save the baby and the baby will go to heaven. If you ask a Calvinist if um, righteousness can be lost, they'll say no. If you ask a person, a Calvinist, what happens to a person who... Uh, Almost died when I was two, that survived, and then didn't make a decision for Christ and died when I was 20. They'd tell you that person would be lost. But if they did make a decision for Christ, they'd be saved. When you ask about what happened in the middle, if they had salvation as a baby and then lost it, what happens to once saved, always saved, you don't get an answer. I don't know. It's a very good question. And And I often ask, I've never got an answer yet. So, yeah? doesn't
0: that seem a bit harsh? Like the baby doesn't have a choice whether to be baptised or not. If
1: the parents decide not to baptise it, like, mm-hmm. I mean if it's not why should the baby have to suffer? Yeah,
2: so? I, I, I I'm not I'm the, yeah. the church says that in whatever option we might uphold, that there's no option that the child will ever suffer. A natural paradise, as David said, if that is the option, there's no suffering whatsoever. A baby that's lost, you know, unbaptised because the parents didn't care is not lost in the sense of damned or suffering. And and
1: look, and like Rob said, the Pope said that there there always remains a possibility that somehow, some way, that baby ends up in heaven. We don't know. That's the whole point. We don't know. That's the other thing about Catholicism. We don't sort of fill in um, gaps and say something is, we, we can say, look, there is a. There is a yeah, here's a good theory. Okay? Like the idea of this natural paradise theory. It was the, the, the old name for it was limbo. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, and it's a theory that fits in with everything that we have been told. Okay? but because it didn't come from Christ and the Apostles the church doesn't come forward and say this is, you, know, you must believe this, Do you know what I mean like? and so because if that didn't come from Christ and the Apostles, the Pope said look, there might be another option some way they might be saved they might be in heaven Actually a
0: good theory um, that I've come across somewhere is that because in heaven there are no real infants as it were because we're all have infused knowledge in our spirit in in eternity as it were mm. then when an infant sees Christ he will be seen with, with the knowledge that is infused and he will have a choice to accept or reject. The angels were given a choice and some of them rejected it. Right? So they knew everything because they have infused knowledge. So but the thing is that it's so important to be baptized, in fact some some saints have brought to life dead babies in time for them to just to be alive to be baptized and mm-hmm. then they die again. So I think it was Saint of fera that did that. It
1: was so important to be baptized. I mean, thanks be to God. My, I, I mean, look, it's not something you want to prepare for. But, um, at the moment of the miscarriage, the very first thing my wife did was to baptise the baby. Um, and then we, but we took it to a church for a burial and everything, you know. Uh, we, there was two young dudes, tell were gender. So, um, okay. But yeah, I mean, look, you got because we don't know we don't know but we do know that baptism saves um, then we baptise as soon as we can we don't know the other option but we do know what happens at baptism So we we encourage baptism as early and as soon as possible okay (coughs) Delia goes on another misrepresentation he says that um, He says, according to Catholic teaching, again, he says, because justification is a process of making someone more righteous until they are finally deemed fit for heaven, that process may not be finished when the person dies, and so the process of purification continues after death in an intermediate state called purgatory. Now, what's that about? Okay, They've got absolutely nothing to do with one another. Absolutely nothing to do with one another. We're not working our way through so that we hope we've got enough grace so that when we die we can fall out of the line and get saved. And if we don't, then you know, we'll go somewhere else where we can get a little bit more grace. So that is not Catholic teaching. plain and simple. What's his purgatory idea? Uh, let me try to give you an analogy. Purgatory is like, I come to you and I say, um, look, you know, there's, there's room in my house. I'd like to adopt you. Um, you're an orphan, I want to adopt you. So, Rob, Tom, you're the two people, I'm, I'm giving you an invitation, I'd like to adopt you. Uh, Rob's a good guy. He goes, yeah, for sure, Dave, I'd love to come and live at your house. And he comes, I live, by the way, on a farm, just outside of Goulburn. It's true, I'm not making that part up. He um, he goes all the way, travels all the way to Goulburn, hard, hard work for Rob to get there. He comes up the last you know, sort of uh, kilometre and a half or so, the last two kilometres of the dirt road. Um, kangaroos everywhere, a neighbour who rides a Harley up and down the road a million miles down and puts dust up. Um, once he gets in the yard, uh, we've got some working dogs for the sheep and you know, dogs do what dogs do and the rob might get there, he's dirty, he's dusty, he steps and stuff, I'd rather he did in through my house. And he gets to the door. Um, what am I gonna say? Come in, sit up on the best chair, put your feet up. How am I going to do that? Look, Rob, would you do me a favour, wipe your feet at the door. Wipe your feet at the door. Um, what do you got for me? Nothing, Dave. Look, I'm just, all I've got is myself, you know. Like, thanks for the invitation to come to your house. I love you. I'd love to come and be uh, you know, part of your adopted family. That's all i got. Alright, Rob, that's fine. that's fine. I love you. Come in. But wipe your feet at the door. Tom, on the other hand, the good father, I gave him an invitation, and he says, no, no way, forget about it. And then, uh, he dies. God forbid, he dies. And then, somebody, his guardian angel, sticks him in a, in, a, in a back of a ute, and he drives him up to my farm and goes, Look, do you want this guy? I I've got to know this guy, get him out of here. Get him out of here. Tom's dirty as well. I'm not going to tell you no I'm not forget about it what's the difference the difference is that Rob journeyed towards my house to accept my invitation when he got there there was no way I was going to turn him away no matter what probably dog do up to his knees dirty and dusty from the road sweaty tired exhausted not going to be able to do anything for me at all be turned up in response to my invitation. I don't send him away and so say, Look, sorry, you're not good enough, go away, work up some more and then come back. Clean yourself at the door and then come in. That's what the, the doctrine of purgatory is. God doesn't come on and say, Look, Paul, you haven't done enough good works to so get getting purgatory and scream for a thousand years and then they'll think about it. It doesn't work that way. What does St. Paul say? After death, the judgment. So you get your judgment then you saved. Now go and get cleaned up so you can get to heaven. There were imperfections. Remember, your box wasn't perfect. Okay. Let's get all the angles right. It's going to hurt a little bit if you were attached to the way you made your box.
0: So
1: it's going to hurt a little bit when we push the box into shape. But that's okay because that pain will purify you. And when you're completely detached from your, the way you made the box, the way the box is meant to be, you can come in. The other option, no relation to God whatsoever, we die. Do we get a second chance in purgatory? Is purgatory a place where we can go and do more merit? No. Get that dead guy right out of here. Sorry Tom, you're going to have to put up a few times, actually. Uh, Dalya says the clear assumption of the doctrine of the clear assumption. Right? This is a guy who doesn't understand purgatory. The clear assumption of the doctrine of purgatory is that Jesus' death is not enough to cleanse the believer from the consequences of sin, and this is the price that he's paid for abandoning the biblical concept of justification by faith alone. Lousy Catholics. If only they'd listen to Calvin's version of rejecting Jesus what Jesus said to do the way John said about the way we say it and interpret it. Uh, Romans four, 4 in, in spite of what it says, immediately after and before, and all that stuff about David's all, just forget about all that stuff, just do it the way we said. <laughs> <laughs> Clear doctrine. You'd see it their way. You wouldn't see a need for a purgatory. Do we see any, um, any place for a purgatory in the Bible? Yeah, we do, Absolutely. When did salvation come to Zacchaeus' house? When did it come? When he said, I'm going to give back more than what I took. When I make recompense more than what I took, this is it. Today's salvation comes to your house. Well done. When you make reparation for what you did wrong? Well done. Very good. What about the thief on the cross? Well already said. He offered, he gave an offering of his sufferings on the cross. I deserve what I've got coming to me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He made an offering of his sufferings. Okay. He purified himself. He, the the sufferings that he was going through anyway, he offered up. Um, Romans chapter 8, I think, again from memory. I don't know the exact quote, uh, the exact uh, verse. Um, I can't think of the quote now off the top of my head either. The um, uh, St. Paul talks about suffering. St. Paul talks about suffering. That's in Galatians. That's in Galatians. Oh. But anyway, St. Paul. There, there's one from Galatians. But St. Paul, uh, he writes are uh, very rich with the idea that um, uh, our, our, our suffering. Uh, improves us and perfects us it's in Romans but I can't remember the exact verse so what happens if if suffering perfects us and we die imperfect what happens that's okay. go to heaven imperfect unclean things can enter is that what, what what the book of Apocalypse says it says the exact opposite nothing unclean shall enter
0: Jesus said, Be
1: perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So that means to say nothing. Yeah. Nothing is perfect. Let me read this. Uh, it all sounds a million miles from We're the like teaching of the minutes. New Testament. Sorry? Two minutes. Okay. Galea says, uh, uh, If all this Catholic stuff sounds a million miles from the teaching of the New Testament about Christ and salvation, it's because it is, Galea says. When Paul declares that grace, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast it, is, it isn't even remotely conceivable said Gilear, that he had in mind something like the elaborate system of Catholicism where grace is dispensed by priests through the p- performance of certain rituals really? So Paul didn't think that at all let's go back because I read that passage from uh, from St. Paul earlier. He stopped, right? Verses 8 and 9, he stopped right there. Nothing remotely in St. Paul. Let's read the next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Can you not think of a work that Christ prepared that we should do? Something that Christ, here's a thing I'm setting up and I want you to do it. Do, this in, memory of Do me. this in memory of me. Shock, horror. Something prepared by Christ that we should walk in. Not remotely mentioned by St. Paul in verses 8 and 9. Forget about verse 10. Not remotely mentioned. Why then, why should I listen, why should I listen to Gilea's version? Why should I listen to his version of what St. Paul says? what his version of Catholicism is why should you listen to mine how come why I'll tell you why I should not listen to Galia's version of Catholicism because he doesn't present it fairly and balanced one because he doesn't present it he sets up a, 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 a straw man at the very best he used some bits of Catholic teaching some bits of you say yeah yeah and he mixes in, he, he sticks in a straw man. Okay, Not the real deal. Don't listen to it. Why should you listen to what I'm saying? Don't. Don't listen to what I'm saying. Go away and read those passages that I told you to read. Pick up a copy of the Catechism of Catholic Church. Find out exactly what the Church actually teaches. See if the Church just quotes these obscure sort of you know, um, formulas from the Council of Trent with no other explanation. See if the church doesn't actually sort of saturate what it says in, in the words of scripture. Go and do that, and then you'll see why the vomit that this Galilea guy spreads is dangerous, why we should equip ourselves to respond to it when Sydney Anglicans go bombing the place around World Youth mm-hmm. Day. Um Gilead finishes the chapter by quoting a story of his father. He says his father went back to Malta. And uh, went to visit the priest, a uh, very old, old, retired priest now. So, yeah, my boy is, is an Anglican minister in Sydney now. And the priest apparently says, Oh, you know, the Protestants, you know what their problem is? They think that God is too kind to, uh, to not send them to purgatory. And Gilead says, Yeah, yeah, see? That's right. Our view of God is that He's too kind. That's another caricature. Okay. From beginning to end, from the beginning of the chapter to the end, everything that he presents, everything that he presents, is designed to deceive. Whether or not it's deliberate, I don't know. That's between him and, 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 and God and his judgment, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that everything there is, is uh, it's an attack against the church. And when you attack the church, no matter what your motive, at the end of the day, you're attacking the head of the church and of Jesus Christ. Thank you very much.
0: You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by David Obeid. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures visit cradio.org.au.